0: My number one album, big shocker to me, also folklore. Whoa. Are you ready to dive into all things Taylor Swift? Good for a Weekend is the ultimate podcast for any Swiftie. With new episodes dropping bi-monthly, as well as bonus episodes to give you real-time reactions to the latest rumors and news, it's your one-stop shop for all things T-Swift. We also love connecting with our fellow Weekenders, so be sure to connect with us on Instagram, Twitter, and or Discord to share all your Taylor thoughts. Good for a Weekend is available wherever you get your podcasts. I know. Uh, of course is For the ones who get it done. Hey, hi, how's it going? Welcome to the Spark Parade. I'm Adam Unz. So glad you could join me. Coming up a bit later on is my chat with the lovely Matthew Todd. Matthew was the editor of Attitude magazine from 2008 to 2016. Attitude is a British gay lifestyle magazine, and it enjoyed tremendous success under Matthew's leadership. I'm talking awards. I'm talking about incredible interviews with people like Madonna, Boy George, Prince William, Daniel Radcliffe, and more. Mr. Todd also wrote a beloved play, Blowing Whistles and a highly acclaimed book called Straightjacket, which is about the effects of prejudice on gay people. And he's written a new book about the history of the LGBTQ equality movement called Pride, the story of the LGBTQ equality movement, just in time for the 50th anniversary of the Stonewall riots. Timely, eh? Uh, Matthew and I had a chat about Three artworks that have inspired him. Madonna's iconic Blonde Ambition Tour, which was in support of her Like a Prayer album and was the subject of the infamous documentary Truth or Dare, or if you're in the UK, it's called In Bed with Madonna. We also talked about Mike Nichols' 1990 film adaptation of Carrie Fisher's semi-autobiographical novel Postcards from the Edge, as well as Harvey Firestein's Torch Song Trilogy, a seminal play about a gay New Yorker in the late 70s and early 80s, which was later adapted into a film written by and starring Firestein. Another jam-packed episode. But before we get to my conversation with Matthew, I'd like to talk a little bit about the relationship between art and social media. So social media is an undeniably amazing marketing tool. It allows artists to promote their work far beyond what used to be achievable pre-internet. Like, you know, you can theoretically promote and provide access to your art to the whole world without leaving your bedroom. So far, so obvious, right? But that immediacy comes with disadvantages too. Artists are expected to provide content. Constantly and exhaustively documenting the process of creating their work and documenting their personal lives and putting them on display. Now, some artists really enjoy sharing more of themselves online and more power to them, but it is steadily becoming a requirement instead of an option. Fans want greater and greater access to the artists they love. They want to interact with them, and not in a passive way, but actually exchanging messages back and forth, direct access. And they also want to offer those artists advice and opinions on every aspect of their life and their work. As is the way with the internet overall, it's not enough to have an opinion. Everyone, everywhere, must have those opinions heard and responded to. It's a tremendous amount of pressure to be present for and accountable to your audience 24 hours a day. Um, This is maybe a bit of a weird example, but recently a trailer was released for the Sonic the Hedgehog movie, and the reaction to the design of this CG Sonic character was absolutely vitriolic. In this case, it was justified. Sonic looked... For want of a better phrase, super creepy. And now the film has been pushed back to allow time for that character to be redesigned as a direct reaction to the trolling. Even in cases where the internet pitchfork mob is right, as is the case here, I don't think art should be created by global committee. The careers of artists will always be affected by reviews, but do we now need to count the opinion of literally everyone all the time? At the risk of sounding like a technophobe, I think it would be healthier if we didn't have this expectation of direct access to our favorite artists. Let them just create the work. You can enjoy it or don't, but don't expect to have your opinion counted. I guess the moral of the story for me is, it's okay to just think things sometimes instead of saying them out loud and demanding a response. Eh, whatever, grandpa's rambling again. Let's just move ahead to the interview. Does that sound good? Great, let's do it. Here's my chat with Matthew Todd about Blonde Ambition, Postcards from the Edge, and Torch Song Trilogy. So, I think a good place to start is where all good things start, which is with Madonna. Uh, The Blonde Ambition Tour. um, Yeah. Did you get to see it live, or have you just seen, like, videos of, of, you know, clips of performances?
1: No, I did get to see it live. It was the first concert I ever saw when I was 16 years old. Um, It was summer 1990. Which is so weird because it doesn't you know, in my life it doesn't feel like that was a long time ago, but mm. you know, it was. It will be thirty years soon. So, um it was a very um yeah, very, very intense year for me. It was the year I came out, the year I first went to a kind of a gay youth group, uh, and it was a year I did my GCSEs, which are the big kind of exams in in the UK that you take when you're when you're sixteen. So it was a very, very intense year. And and I was kind of um Uh, I I, I wasn't really interested in pop music, to be honest. I was more interested in musical theatre. I I was quite a a cliched gay child (laughs) Mm. into the Phantom of the Opera and Les Miserables and all that kind of thing. And my best friend, uh, it's funny enough, actually, my best friend's father was one of Princess Dana's bodyguards mm. and he had bought tickets to take his father bought tickets, to take him and his son to, to see Madonna and he had to work. And so they offered them to me and I wasn't really bothered to be honest. I, I didn't particularly want to go on that, and I couldn't really afford it. And I kind of still oh, I can't afford it and an excuse to, to not go. And then they, they just, um, they they gave it to me and uh, yeah went along and so, I mean go, going to a, going to any concert I think is quite intense and quite exciting but going to Wembley Stadium one of the biggest stadiums in the world and seeing this crazed Italian American <laughs> person doing everything she was doing it was very 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 intense.
0: Yeah, were, were you into her music at all? I, I mean, no, not you know, at all. just like
1: uh, funnily enough, it, w- one of the first records I did buy was True Blue, but I didn't. I I am. A slightly strange person. I need to have everything explained to me really in really simple terms. I didn't really understand what what music was in the sense that I didn't understand what records were, I didn't understand that you would go and buy singles, as it were, or even albums. So, you know, I had the music that I was listening to. Uh, kind of cringing i mean i love musical theater but it, i just felt like i feel like i led quite a sheltered life in, in lots of ways was musical theater soundtracks and kind of i don't know if you have them in the states but these albums now that's what i call music mm-hmm. A very big successful series here and i listened to those but i still didn't really understand who was singing them where they came from how it worked what the charts were i just didn't have any concept of that so i didn't really have any concept of madonna really yeah. even though i liked this song true blue and i used to see along with it with the next one neighbor
0: so that uh, that concert must have been quite a baptism of fire, like very theatrical production. So I guess, you know, that, that fits in with the musical theatre stuff, that it was all about spectacle.
1: Yeah, it was very theatrical. And I think, yeah, that's it was probably a good thing in that respect that I, I felt, felt like I knew my way around musical theatre at that point. So it was good to see something that was, you know, like she has said, hasn't she, that it's, that it's it was meant to be a piece of performance art and theatre. But I think it's just the kind of power that she had over an audience. I really remember it really well. It's so funny, I remember these two couples, two you know male-female couples who were up to the side of us and just they were chatting and they were really, really excited. They probably were just in their mid-twenties, but I'd not really been around people like that um older than me and i was just interested to hear what they were saying and their excitement and then i and i, I don't know if you know that tour, but it begins with the kind of kind of homage to metropolis the film metropolis and, and the express yourself video where all these kind of guys come out and they're all kind of oiled up and she rises out of the stage and begins herself. and it's just such a kind of a moment of power to see a woman doing that was kind of something i hadn't ever seen before and it was yeah and to see the way the crowd reacted and that was, I think that was at the height of her her popularity really it was what what Neil Tennant of the Pet Shop Boys calls an imperial phase you know the, the moment when you are the absolute zenith of your pop career where you know everything is a hit and you can you there's some kind of magic that happens and then the pop artist catches the zeitgeist and it, it happens for a, a few years and I think That was really the high point of Madonna's success, you know, from around like a prayer through Vogue and then kind of started to change when erotica came out in what 93 i think it was 92 92 mm. so it was very intense seeing somebody that famous as well i mean she, i think people forget now how famous madonna was you know a different time without the internet and she was in the papers the whole time everything she did was you know was spoken about and poured over so i had some awareness of hearing about this person but then to see oh this is why people like
0: her right it was really overwhelming yeah And even without necessarily engaging very much with her music or the cult of Madonna, even even at the peak of her fame, seeing that show... You get a really clear sense of how in control she was and that she was collaborating with the best of the best, finding people who would create something that was really memorable and that would, would last forever. I mean, it, it is really well documented as well because of um, Truth or Dare slash oh. Bed with Madonna, that uh, there are all of these really iconic moments that um, are are really well-preserved, but it was also part of it wasn't the first time that anybody had done a stage show that was full of spectacle like that, but definitely part of a wave of these absolutely astronomically huge artists like Michael Jackson and Prince and people like that who were sell- selling out arenas and figuring out a way to create a performance that would make a very expensive ticket worth the price of admission for tens of thousands of people. So, yeah, I can imagine that was a <laughs> quite a, an overwhelming experience
1: yeah it was it's interesting that I, re- I think I read somewhere recently that M- Madonna I think, Michael, I think maybe it was an audio was taped thing of Michael Jackson I don't know maybe I'm making that up in my head but somewhere that Michael Jackson was saying that Madonna was jealous of him because he had these fans that I don't know if you remember there'd be lots of videos of fans like absolutely hysterical and crying and collapsing and like being you know taken out on stretchers hyperventilating and that Madonna didn't get that and she, she really wanted that and it's funny because I can understand from an ego point of view that you might want to, to be like that but now I look back I think oh god that's not particularly emotionally healthy is it to, to to want people to do that and i'm interested now because i'm interested in you know i've written i ended up interviewing madonna and i've interviewed lots of celebrities and uh, write quite a lot about climate change now and I, and I find that really interesting in terms of our culture and what our culture's values are and celebrity is one of the biggest things in you know western culture mm-hmm. and so even though I, I was part of it and you know loved madonna I still do love Madonna. There's something that I, it's a double-edged sword to me. You know, it's also quite destructive in some ways and not massively healthy. But I suppose that's a, that's the conversation that can go on for hours and hours and hours. But mm. I mentioned it in my book actually yeah. about that. It's said about gay gay people that I think went or, or anyone who's traumatised. If you grow up feeling not very good about yourself and if you're in a huge amount of distress and pain for you know one of many reasons, people want to check out. And one of the ways they do that is through fantasy. And for many of us, it's entertainment and pop music and films Mm. and it's great in some ways because it can be life-saving but it can become this obsession there are certain artists i think that create a fantasy world a really all-encompassing world and ethos and the kind of way of thinking and almost like an ideology a cultural ideology Mm. and i think she she was definitely one of them and i was completely obsessed after that i mean i I was you know Mm. bought everything plastered hundreds of pictures of her all over my room and it's fun because i think there's kind of there's something yeah, you know, quite cool about the way that young gay people latch onto pop stars. But also, I feel quite. I have a picture of me in my bedroom at that time, just wearing a Madonna t-shirt, surrounded by Madonna's face, leering. Mm-hmm. Eight hundred Madonna faces looking at me, and it's also something quite sad because I was in a lot of pain at that time. So yeah. I find all that. I find that dynamic really interesting as well.
0: I, I also think the escapism can be really damaging, and at the same time, giving people an outlet when they are feeling so much pain, or you know have especially for gay people who are having trouble dealing with being gay or you know have family members who won't accept them or whatever that having this this kind of outlet can be helpful as well but at the same time i think the progression from madonna levels of fame through to social media where now you can have that kind of connection that people have with madonna where it's like this you know person on stage who's kind of unattainable but also feel like they're your friend, you know, see every, every aspect of their life 24 hours a day. And yeah, it's like it, so much more to obsess about.
1: Yeah, I guess it can, it's kind of like drinking in a way, you know, there's nothing wrong with drinking. Drinking is perfectly fine, but it can easily become a problem and you can mm. do it too much. And I think, that, that is, I think that's true of people's relationship with, with celebrity. Mm, there we are.
0: There we are. So should we have a little talk about, a um, little chat about postcards from the edge? Yeah. So, did you did you ever read the book?
1: No, I tried to read the book, and I couldn't really get into it. And I think I just didn't. I, I've never gone back to it, which is funny because I love Carrie Fisher, and it's one of the reasons why I love the film so much. But I, I've never really engaged with her writing. I don't know why that is. I don't know if I. Cause I, I just love. I mean, I do love Meryl Streep as well. And I wonder. I wonder if I don't want to burst the bubble of you know the idea in that film that although she's not called you know Carrie, mm-hmm. it's essentially about you know, Carrie Fisher's life and her relationship with with her mother, Debbie Reynolds. And um, maybe I don't want to kind of change my, my, my vision of, of of the way it is in the film.
0: Yeah. And it is definitely an adaptation. I read the book after I saw the film. I don't really remember how different it was to the film, but um, Mm. yeah, just, I I, I think, um, you know, they're, they're different media as well so yeah you're, you're getting a completely different experience from the film and it's also you know the actors mike Nibble's direction all of that stuff definitely makes it a different experience but do you remember did you see it in the cinema or did you see it yeah i did that?
1: i remember i saw it in the cinema i remember being aware of it and it came out and it came and went and i missed it and then i remember i was dating my first boyfriend and so it would have been about 17 going on 18 and so it must have been 91 92 93 i remember it was on in a place called Epsom in South London. So we drove all the way to Epsom at, to, a, to a small local theatre where they sometimes would show films if they didn't have a, a play or a show on. And we saw it there. And uh, I really r- vividly remember it. I remember walking into into the place and sitting down and the experience of it. And I think, you know, essentially it's about addiction and what I would call codependence now. this kind of strange way of having slightly difficult relationships with people that are close to you but not being able to break, break away from them and kind of being addicted to problematic relationships, essentially. Mm-hmm. And although I didn't realize I had any problems at that point and certainly didn't think I had any addiction problems, I mean, I, I don't drink anymore, uh, and I am kind of consider myself a recovering alcoholic. I, I'd only just started drinking then, but I remember really relating to something really touched me not just in the kind of comedy and the campiness and all the rest of it but just this the 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 way that character expresses herself and expresses some of the problems that she had there's a line that where she says i just can't feel my life Mm. and that yeah that really speaks to me like uh, i think it just did it in a very you know subliminal kind of way at the time when i was 17 or 18 yeah i knew i was messed up even
0: though (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um, it's funny in, uh, sort of refreshing my memory for, for this, uh, I came across Roger Ebert's review of the film and he lived, generally liked it, but said it was quite critical of the treatment of addiction and sort of acted like there should have been some kind of moral, um, or, or proselytizing about, you know, the, the evils of addiction or, a solution given to how addicts can, you know, um, fix their lives or, or something. And it just felt like he completely missed the mark. Um, this mm. is the the second time in doing this podcast that I've come across a Robert, uh, Roger Ebert uh, review that I absolutely disagreed with. But I thought it handled addiction really well. And the the idea to me is that there is no easy answer. And people are individuals. People deal with addiction in different ways. And there isn't, you know, a one-size-fits-all model that's going to be a cure-all for for everyone who has issues with addiction, and it talks about the peripheral issues around addiction as well, like codependency and the pressures from family, from work, um, mm. all of those things. And I think handles it really delicately and really sensitively. Um, and I, I think it would have been a mistake to say. At the end, you know, this, everybody was perfect and everything was really happy and no one had any problems anymore because it's, it's not real life.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting. I never really thought about it in that way because I but think, but now you say that, I think it's interesting because, yes, it, it certainly isn't a morality tone. It isn't about this is what to do and this is how it feels and this is how people get better. But but it's interesting because all of the characters do go on a journey. And I, and I think the key thing about addiction is people couldn't become addicts unless they were in denial in some way, and I think you know that she, the main character, she's uh, in denial. You know, certainly at the beginning and then throughout at different times. She goes on her journey, and there's that great scene towards the end where she's with Gene Hackman, the film director, and she's doing the looping and and you know doing the sound on the film and, and going back and correcting it. And he says something like, oh, "Those films aren't like real life. You know, you can go back and correct it in in a film, but you can't in real life." But in some ways. You can because you can make amends and you can move on. And, and, and people who are familiar with 12-step groups know that a, a lot of the fundamental part of that is going back and, you know, apologizing and, and kind of taking responsibility for the, for the things you've done. And I think some of those things actually are in there. They're just not kind of laid out in a very like, she's a bad person. She's had done horrible things and she's evil and now she must apologize and become a saint. And this is how you get better. I, I mean, I don't know. I, I mean, I'm not aware of that critic but I don't know what his politics are. I mean, it sounds like that's quite a conservative viewpoint to be. It's interesting as well, though, because it was, it would have been post Nancy Reagan and the Just Say No campaigns. So I guess in the kind of five, six, seven years before that film came out, you know, drug addiction was, was a big issue. What I found really interesting actually is I, I read somewhere when the Merrill Street film, August Osage County came out she did an interview Meryl talking about how she struggled I don't want to kind of misrepresent her because it was just one short interview that I met but she struggled to play that part because she finds it hard to understand addiction and when I read that that just it may well have been the, the quote the way the quote was presented it sounded like she was being judgmental about addiction and then I realized subsequently when Carrie Fisher died two years ago that that Meryl and Carrie were really really good friends that maybe think oh maybe she didn't you know maybe it was misrepresented because maybe she doesn't understand addiction but it sounds like she probably would have had quite a few conversations with Carrie being a really close friend of hers about it and about mental health and about bipolar as Carrie Fisher was Mm -hmm. so I I mean I I absolutely love that film now and I, I feel it's still interesting that you know Stories about addiction are generally told by men, white, straight men. On on the whole, and There's kind of those kind of like drinking memoirs and drugging memoirs. It's I'm sure there must be a million and one. I'm sure maybe there are more films with women telling their stories, but, but that's the that's the what the most prominent one that I can think of. Yeah. Uh, and to see it done in a, in a way which is kind of sympathetic, and you know, she's you know she's shown you know having casual sex, mm. doing things which maybe in the mainstream you know have been traditionally frowned upon in terms of, you know, the quote unquote, the way women are meant to behave. And I I, I just love that film. I just, I just think it's so grown up and so so adult and so true in, in the way, you know, the way that they have that difficult relationship with her and Shirley MacLaine in it. Yeah. I just think so many people can relate to dysfunctional relationships like that.
0: <laughs> right. And I think that the sympathy, that the kindness That runs through it, I think, is a testament to Carrie Fisher as well, but that dealing with her own addiction, her own mental health issues, but also mental health issues and addiction writ large um, with kindness and compassion and humor and saying, you know, people have good and bad things in their lives. They can be fucked up for a million reasons and people who are addicts have joy in their lives too. And mm. they, um, you know, it, it's all, there's, there's highs and lows in life and, and showing things in a balanced way. And again, showing it with, with kindness. And, um, I thought that that was just absolutely brilliant. And you don't, you're not left at the end of the film thinking that Meryl Streep's character is never going to have a relapse. It's you know, this happy ending, but it doesn't, it doesn't put a, full stop on things it's like she's in process she's she's dealing with her shit in the way that she can right now and taking things day by day and i I think that's a really lovely way to to end it as well
1: yeah and i I love the way as well that the 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 fundamental kind of theme throughout the film is the 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 difficulty you know the kind of you know parent child problematic relationship and they had the big the big scene on the staircase where mm-hmm. Meryl kind of lets it all out but but also even though it's really clear that Shirley MacLaine's character had done a lot of damaging things to her and that Meryl's character did have a lot of resentment against her there's actually still a lot of love between them and I think it's quite rare to see such such a nuanced portrayal of that in in drama
0: yeah that's a another excellent point just like showing human relationships in all of their complexities and showing you know people can let you down and also support you the next day and you know showing those moments where you know Meryl Streep has overdosed and how worried and upset Shirley McLean is and wanting to support her but still being the mother that drives her crazy Mm. Um, you know I think there's a lot that everybody can relate to in, in that, yeah, absolutely. that kind of relationship. Yeah. I'm just looking at the cast list as well. That was packed. Oh, yeah. It's great, isn't absolutely it? Absolutely packed with amazing. Annette Benning, Dennis Quaid, and Julia oh my god yeah he's amazing i
1: really love that 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 moment of romance she's so dry I mean, there's no one mm. that is dry as carrie fisher there's some line it where she says something like oh i think we should go on a date just so that we can tell people when they ask where we met that he's the guy that pumped my stomach <laughs>
0: yeah
1: it's just it's just such a kind of amazing i mean i I'm not saying that all gay people have that, sh- that, kind of, that kind of bleak sense of humor, but there certainly is a kind of, you know, a, a line that runs down, you know, a tra- you know, traditional certain type of gay person's kind of sense of humor, which can be very dark and, you know, I guess making light of difficult things. But I really connected to that. I, I, I really loved Carrie's sense of humor.
0: Yeah, she was quite an amazing person.
1: She was, yeah, she was incredible she's just, there's, a, there's, an, there's lots of amazing speeches on on YouTube which were just introduction speeches to, to like where she 's giving out awards just that just are absolutely amazing there's one well. she she's uh, giving an award to George lucas mm, yeah, yeah, and it 's hysterical, very naughty, but mm. um, really, really funny,
0: yeah, but just lesser lots, lots of humor and lots of heart mm uh, yeah, so torch song trilogy, mm. Uh, did you see the play or the film or, uh, or? I saw the play
1: much, much later. I saw it in London, actually, at the a Chocolate Factory, probably about six mm-hmm. or seven years ago. Yep. Um, I think I saw it before that somewhere, maybe an amateur production, but no, I saw it... Um, I think it came out in 1988, if I remember rightly. So it would have been right in the midst of the most hysterical and her- horrific part of HIV and AIDS in that in the, in the 80s which mm-hmm. so i think it was kind of you know radical actually that they even released it I and mean, the play was kind of radical and i think it's very rightly, i think it's the first play that the first gay play that really made a significant amount of money on broadway and it became a very cool thing and a very big hit and he won the tony award harvey feierstein and kind of made a made a, a star out of him and i think it's the late 80s or uh, sorry the late 70s or early 80s i can't remember now but yes i so i remember being aware of the film but there was a magazine in, in the uk called sky magazine which wasn't a gay magazine but it certainly was a very aware that it had a lot a big gay readership and i met some of the the staff since then and they said yes that's absolutely the case you know mm-hmm. they, they were really very aware of, of that at the time and i remember seeing a big advert for it and not really knowing what it was and i think it was a picture of uh, i don't know if you yeah if you know it well but but the, the harvey's character arnold is loves rabbits and has like the kind mm-hmm. of rabbit salt and pepper pots and things like that and, and rabbit slippers and there was a picture i think of all the uh, a bunch of uh, men all lined up with one of them wearing bunny slippers <laughs> And I remember thinking that feels like it might be quite gay, but being but still at a time when I hadn't come out, so I was still frightened of gay stuff because in the media, you know, gay was being portrayed as satanic almost and the most terrible thing you could be and a threat to humanity. And gay in the media's eyes equaled AIDS, and so it was this kind of relationship between gay and death. So it was absolutely horrific and traumatic and you know that comes right from the time where i was really really growing up in a very damaged way which is what my book straight jacket is about and i saw i saw the film when i came out and a, a, a kid from my school came out to the same gay youth group that i went to and we became good friends and eventually he's kind of Sat me down and forced me to watch it. And I think it was the first time I'd ever seen gay relationships portrayed with any warmth and ever shown that gay people can actually have a relationship and can fall in love and that it can be about love. At that point, as I say, it was about sex and death and, you know, terrible things and, you know, connected to fear. And, you know, the media was just so incredibly homophobic. So it was very hard to have any positive feelings about. You know gayness let alone your own sexuality which I was obviously hiding as a teenager mm-hmm. so it was really overwhelming to me to see a film where just where, where the characters are talking about love and relationships and had friends and cared about each other and weren't horrible and were nice people you yeah, know it's yeah. amazing when I think about it so still
0: I still love it for that reason yeah and so radical and unusual for the for the time period that you could have gay characters who weren't relying on stereotypes, were full, fully fledged, you know, fleshed out characters, and their gayness wasn't beside the point. It was essential to the story that was being told, but it's also a story about u- universal themes, things that can happen to anyone, but set in a gay context. And I remember that being, feeling really revelatory to me as well seeing that gay stories could be told without them having to be a cautionary tale about how bad gay people are or gay sex or how gay, dangerous gay sex is or just about how sad being gay is or how scary aids is or whatever mm,
1: yeah it was incredible and and also um just thinking when i was just thinking about it it's actually um quite diverse you know they're, they're so so much of kind of representation of, of gay people i mean i th- think it's starting to change a little bit now but has been you know uh very white and very you know these kind of handsome kind of jock characters that maybe i don't know is a fa- fantasy for, for some people but in torchong trilogy In the film, you know, I mean, he, Arnold, is, you know, he's a very effeminate gay man and, you know, he's a drag performer and the friends of his is the older guy who must be in his 60s or 70s, which is kind of unusual to see a a character, you know, with any warmth portrayed in that way at that age. And also one of his closest friends in the film, not in it massively, but he's he's a black gay man. And, you know, it's quite, quite kind of unusual Actually, I think in, in ahead of its time in, in so many ways. And it's funny that so many young people today haven't heard about it, don't don't know about it. I know it's it's on Broadway again at the moment, mm-hmm. isn't it? It's a new yeah. thing, yeah. So I guess that's a good thing that people there will be will be hearing about it. But I mean, so many young people who've who've just never never heard about it because I guess during that time, you know, it, w- it w- I mean, mo- you know, most gay films don't get a wide release even now, do they? But but at that point, it would have played not very widely, I guess, and. You know, lots of people wouldn't have known about it or seen it. And so it's a kind of little jewel that is there for people to go and dig up and, and find.
0: Yeah, I, I have such lovely memories of, you know, at the time I wasn't out and feeling just kind of like curious and excited that this kind of story could be told and made me feel a bit more uh, not necessarily <laughs> optimistic about being gay, but yeah. Um, mm just I I don't know I I went through a lot of even though I came from a ridiculously supportive family like you know my my mom worked for the first AIDS organization in Minnesota so I I grew up around a lot of gay people and never there was never a question in my mind that my family wouldn't accept me or anything but um I was very hard on myself and I think Mm. seeing things like this and just even though it's fiction um knowing that there are stories out there about gay people having happy lives and, you know, there's sad stuff in the play, too. There, there are a lot mm. of um, mm. ups and downs, but mm. feeling like it's possible for, for gay people to have as happy and full lives as their straight counterparts was, was pretty important to me.
1: Mm, absolutely yeah and it's sad isn't it just as sad that i mean i think even now i think probably that's something that probably quite a lot of young people would still say i noticed that when love simon came out there were quite a lot of critics that were saying "Ah, oh, young people don't need this they don't care they just don't care they're above it all They've you know got clubs and will and grace and grinder and they just don't care and actually on twitter that isn't i don't think that seemed to be the consensus from the young people that i was seeing in america actually when it came because it came out a month or so before in the states and it did here and people were saying they were in tears and how much it meant to them so so although things are better there's there's still that kind of connection that that people have especially young people to seeing positive representations or even fair just fair representations of lgbtq people in on, on screen mm-hmm. um but i think back then for us I mean, I'm writing about this actually in the book that's coming out next year, just about um, what about you know the history of the last fifty years since since Stonewall, and uh, and there's a chapter on films and, and TV, and it's incredible, you know, just to remember that the the depictions were so so negative, and for a long time, you know, gay people were portrayed as being psychos, murderers, or people that would have to kill themselves at the end or be killed by somebody else, and it's just so relentless and so constant. And even around, I think it must have been around that time, maybe a little bit earlier when Teen Wolf came out. And I really loved Michael J. Fox because I had a, well, I had a big crush on him. And Back to the Future was a hugely successful film. Still really love him now. Still really respect him. But it was really sad. And I know this, people have talked about this a lot. But just in that, there's that moment in Teen Wolf where he's coming out to his friend and, and he said, I've got something to tell you. And he says, Michael, like, oh, you're not going to tell me you're a fag, are you? Any, anything and the anything other than that he doesn't quite say that but he says yeah you're not, you're not going to tell me you're a fag are you? and, he, my, and Michael J. Fox's character says oh no god I'm not a fag I'm a werewolf and, and just this feeling of being kind of assaulted when you went to the cinema without you know with no warning that at that time and certainly in the 80s you just would be assaulted there'd be anti-gay references or jokes at, at any time so to see a film like Talk Song where the characters have dignity
0: Mm-hmm. I
1: mean, it's such a, it's such a radical thing.
0: Yeah. And it's, it's such, no, yeah. It's
1: such a radical thing.
0: Yeah. And none of them are a footnote. None of them are uh, the butt of a joke. It's, it's real lives running the full emotional gamut, giving people a chance to see gay stories that represent real gay lives. Um, I also remember that from like John Hughes movies and from Bill and Ted he yeah, I think the casually- breakfast... Yeah, uh, it's breakfast references.
1: Clubs. I think they say they say faggot in the word in the, in the film Breakfast Club. I think it's yes,
0: 16 candles as well. And yeah,
1: there's just so many that it was just so commonplace then. And it's it was really I remember seeing police academy that was something because I quite like the police academy films and all the kind of kids at school we would go and see the police academy films. And there was always that running joke where they would the uh, red blooded cops would always take a wrong turning and, and end up in the gay bar and end up kind of the implication is I don't know, they'd be raped. I don't know, I don't know what it would be, mm-hmm. but see them kind of like dancing with these leather-clad men. And it was always like gay people are freaks, essentially. So, yeah, it's amazing. And I'm glad to talk about it in this in case there are young people listening. Yeah. Just so that they know a bit about just how, how different it was. Just, you know, and I know it's not perfect now. I know it's not easy for lots of people now. And I know I hear lots, especially, you know, in, you know, places in the States where it can be really, really difficult people are very religious and so on and so forth. But just it just was so oppressive and so relentless. And then there was, there, at least there are glim, you know, there were glimmers of of hope. Now there there is Will and Grace, and there are kind of you know Anderson Cooper and people like that. Those people just mm-hmm. were, that, that did not exist back then. Those people were not out, and that actually made it worse, I think, knowing that there were some gay people out that that were in the closet. So you absorb this message: of why the why are they in the closet? Because they, to them it must feel like it's something bad and so they don't come out. It just was, you just assorted from every angle. And, you know, people get a lot of praise now, don't they, for coming out. Someone comes out and goes on about how brave they are. But you think about Talkshon Trilogy and Harvey Feierstein really, you know, was doing radical things when it wasn't easy. And actually just, I was just looking on, um, on the internet, Ken Page, who's the, you know, the, the uh, actor who's done lots of voice work. I think he's one of the one of the, the uh, characters in The Nightmare Before Christmas. And I, I, I imagined that I don't know, but I would have thought, you know, it wasn't necessarily the kind of safest job to take in a film like Torch on Trilogy back at the time. I know there were previous instances of filmmaking love, I think, with Harry Hamlin, who's a heterosexual mm-hmm. actor. Mm-hmm. I know that he said that, you know, he was warned, don't take this film, it will affect your career, it will damage your career, and it, he feels that it did damage his career. So, you know, that that's how, that's how awful it was then, that even
0: to play a gay character could get you kind of shunned in Hollywood. Yeah. Could and as you said, there, there's still a long way to go in terms of gay people being universally accepted and safe and able to live their lives openly and happily without fear of anyone hurting them or taking their job away or taking their home away, all of those things. But the difference in media depictions of gay people uh, in films and books and uh, TV shows, not only... Do you not see those really exaggerated police academy versions of, of gay life where it's, you know, something to be mocked or feared, but those tiny daggers of having people casually throwing around the word faggot or saying how relieved that they are that their, their friend isn't gay or whatever. Mm. None of that would be even remotely acceptable. And I think that is a really amazing step forward it's It's really lucky that's one of the one of the things that I think is easier now is knowing that those things will be stopped and or that probably wouldn't happen in the first place. but if they did happen, there would be such enormous backlash and protests that people would have to inevitably apologize for it. You can't get away with it anymore can yeah, you? yeah there's there's no tolerance for it mm. um, well uh i think that was great i think um we've we've got we've got a a good overview of quite a wide variety of topics um where do people find you if they want to find out more about your work
1: um i'm on twitter mr matthew todd and instagram um my book straight jacket is on you can you can buy it in the states in some shops in the states and you can get it online in the states too so
0: well, thank you very much for talking to me. Thank
1: you. Nice talking to you. And um, Oh, I forgot okay. to say Ma- Mr. Matthew Todd. Sorry, Ma- sorry. MatthewTodd.net. I've got a website. How oh. ridiculous. I did not remember it. Who yes. am I?
0: <laughs> yeah, MatthewTodd.net. MatthewTodd.net. Um, yeah. Yes, everyone, check it out. Well, yes, take care of yourself um very lovely speaking to you and we you speak to you sooner than uh however long it's been uh, since the last time <laughs> yeah i hope so all right take care all right bye, bye. bye. what a love right that was a very pleasant chat. Please check out Matthew's new book, Pride, the Story of the LGBTQ Equality Movement, as well as the rest of his work. Okay, recommendations, here they come. It has been a great week for me when it comes to work created by and about women. I've been watching the second season of Fleabag. It's so fucking good. Phoebe Waller-Bridge is an insanely good writer. She's so, so funny. And she really knows how to strike the perfect balance between humor and melancholy. And the actors in that show are so amazing. I mean, Phoebe Waller-Bridge herself is an exceptional actor. Olivia Colman, who is really just the greatest. Her comic timing is perfect. Perfect, I say. Kristen Scott Thomas, tremendous. Fiona Shaw, the best. Ugh, it's so good. I feel angry after each episode knowing that this is the last series because I want more. Also, also I saw Smart, it's Olivia Wilde's directorial debut, and it's fucking brilliant, so funny and sweet and kind of filthy, and it's such a joy to see a high school coming-of-age story slash high school sex comedy told from the perspective of two young women. The actors in this one are great too, Caitlin Deaver, Beanie Feldstein, and oh my god, Billy Lord is so fucking hilarious. Also, it does a great job of having a gay lead character without focusing all of its energy on her coming out narrative. This is something I've obviously been harping on about a lot lately, but it's just so refreshing to see the balance between her gayness being an essential part of her, but also being treated as no big deal and just another part of the story. So please go and see it. Uh, it didn't have the greatest opening weekend in terms of money, and so there are already a lot of... And so there are already lots of bullshit think pieces floating around about what this means for the bankability of movies by and about women. It's making me want to puke, and if you don't want me to puke, then you should go and see this movie, make it a success, and then people will stop saying sexist bullshit forever. Right? Great! Okay! Let's wrap this up, kids. Uh, Even after my tirade about the grossness of social media, please follow me on social media at Spark Parade. (laughs) And please rate and review the show because it helps me out a lot. Other than that, just keep being your beautiful self. Have the best week of your life. Until next time, bye.